I'd like to share with you just a few words out of Psalm 66. Shout joyful praises to God. All the earth sing about the glory of his name. Tell the world how glorious he is. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Your enemies cringe before your mighty power. Everything on earth will worship you. They will sing your praises, shouting your name in glorious songs. Friends, we gather this morning in this place to sing of God's glorious praises, to, to remind each other of how great our Lord is. We are in the second week of our Lenten series. Um, Lent is a season of, of repentance and remembering and renewal. It is a, a season of preparation as we prepare for the Eastertide of, of Easter and of the death and resurrection of Christ. And, and while our culture has often neglected this, this season and turned it into more of a, a New Year's resolution, I'm going to give up chocolate, I'm going to give up soda, I'm going to give up something, um, Lent is meant to be more of a preparation for how is my life with Christ? What has prevented me from experiencing God? How can I develop my spiritual life so that I can better live the rest of this year with God? That's the intent of Lent. It's not meant to be, let's get rid of something um, tangibly for a little while. It's meant to be a preparation for the rest of the year. And it's one of the oldest holidays in the Christian calendar as Easter became one of the, the baptismal times of the Christian year, um, as early Christians prepared for their baptism at Easter time. Today we're going to be looking at a scripture that we've looked at a couple of times over these last few months. Again, um, this, this turning point in the gospel where, where Jesus tells the disciples about his turning point and going to Jerusalem and this encounter of, of Peter kind of rebuking Jesus and telling Jesus, um, you said you're going to die, and I don't like that. And Jesus gives a challenge to the disciples. So we're going to be looking at a different aspect of that story, this, this account of this rebuke. But Jesus gives a challenge, and I'm calling it the real deal challenge, because the challenge that Jesus gives is one that we read about and we talk about um, if you want to be my follower. If you want to be a Christian, you're going to have to do a couple of things. And so today we're going to look at that challenge, this real deal challenge that Jesus gives, and it's going to push us potentially to the limit, but I think that's kind of what Jesus intended because a lot of times when Jesus talks about his expectations for us as followers, at first glance we're like, oh yeah, I can do that. But then when you really start to think about it, you're like, oh, wait a minute, Jesus, I don't, did you really mean that? Because if you did, that's, that's pretty intense. Let's take a moment to pray together. Most holy and awesome God, we come before you this day with a sense of springtime. fresh after the new fallen snow with the sunshine and the new time of the time change with the expectation of warm weather today. 
in the excitement of a new spring day. We're excited for all that you bring into our lives. Lord, we ask that you would descend upon us this day, that your Holy Spirit would would fill us and fill this place as we seek to understand you through your word, through your music, through the silence, through this entire experience of worship. God, enlighten us and enliven us this day. It's in the name of your Son and our Savior that we pray and everyone said, Amen. So a few years ago, well, nearly a decade ago, uh, a representative from uh, Teach America paid a visit to Duke. Um, and Teach America hires the, the brightest students and places them in some of the nation's worst public schools. And, and so the representative stood before the crowd of, of Duke students and, and he said, this is what he said, he said, I can tell just by looking at you that I've come to the wrong place. Somebody told me that this was the BMW school, and, and I believe that. Just looking at you, I know you've achieved success and that you're on track for even more success. Yet, I'm here today to convince you to throw your life away in the toughest job you'll ever have. I want people to go into the hollow of West Virginia, to the ghettos of South Los Angeles, to teach in the worst schools in America. Last year, two of our teachers were killed on the job. But just by looking at you, I can tell you're not interested. So go to grad school, make your millions, and live your for success and comfort. But if by chance you're interested in the toughest job in America, I have a few brochures, so come over and see me. Meeting's over. And at that, the students pushed into the aisles and mobbed that guy for brochures and information and began signing up for more information about Teach America. I believe that deep down inside each of us, God has wired us with a sense of mission and missional calling. And that a a challenge-free life, it might be safe, but that ultimately it's, it's dull and it's empty. And that's one of the things I love about Christ. One of the things I love about Jesus is that he can be so kind, he can be so gentle, but he can also turn around and, and without apology issue a challenge that cuts to the core of our very existence. And that's what we have today in our passage from Mark 8. And I call it the real deal challenge. And it's found in Mark 8, verse 34. And the challenge goes like this. Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. It's so bold. It's so uncompromising, and it's, it's all or nothing. If I'm going to claim to be a Christian, if I'm going to claim that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, if I'm going to live it, then this is one of the key verses of Scripture 
that I'm going to have to grapple with. It's one of the things I'm going to have to do and be. This is the fork in the road. I was going to show a video, but I realized that you may not remember this, but it is a pivotal part of my childhood. And um, Fozzie Bear is, is in a Studebaker with Kermit the Frog. Are you seeing this in your head? It's right before one of my favorite songs in the world. And if you can see this in your head, you do not need the video um, because... Kermit! If, and Kermit pulls out the map and he goes, If you come to the fork in the road, take a left. Kermit! There's a fork in the road! And there's literally a fork in the road, right? <laughs> Kermit looks out the... Huh! Didn't see that coming. <laughs> Moving right along. Okay, now you're all going to go home and watch the Muppets. There's a fork in the road. Y'all know the quote, right? Yogi Bear. I thought my dad came up with this quote. Because I always quote my father. My dad always told me when he come to a fork in the road, take it. But actually is Yogi Bear. The followers of Jesus come to this fork in the road, and they want to take it. In other words, they want to have, they have to take it. In other words, they, they come to this fork in the road. They want to have it both ways. Have you ever wanted to have it both ways? You want to have that way and that way. You want to have your cake, and you want to eat it too. You want to have both and. But the reality in life is you can't always have it both ways. You can't have both things. You can't be over there and over there at the same time. Quantum physics doesn't allow it. Schrodinger's cat. You can't be alive and dead at the same time. It's a paradox. They can't have both things. So the disciples are in this place called um, Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And we talked about this a few weeks ago. And the disciples say, well, you know, some say you're that guy, some say you're that guy, some say you're that guy. And, and, uh, and remember that, that, that Jesus then goes, well, who do you say that I am? Who do you see that I am? And Peter, Peter goes, well, you're, you're the Christ, which, which means you're the Messiah, you're the, you're the anointed one. And Jesus brings the disciples to this fork in the road, and he starts in verse 31, and we find... Three phrases that stick out in that, which we've talked about this, so I'm not going to go deep into that, but there's three things that Jesus says. Jesus says he's going to suffer many things, he's going to be rejected, and he's going to be killed. Right? This is that turning point of the gospel. He's turning back to Jerusalem. Not only that, but in verse 32 he said he spoke plainly about it. Hey, guys. I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to suffer a whole lot, and I'm going to die, just so you know. Just FYI. Meaning, Jesus was direct, he was bold, and he was speaking candidly about these events. Now understand that up until this point, so following Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, meant power, meant authority, it meant it meant healing people. 
You know, we see all of these stories. The disciples were with Jesus, and, and he was curing the incurable. He was doing miracles, feeding the 5,000. He was, he was raising people from the dead. Walking with Jesus was miraculous. It was a powerful and empowering experience. To walk with Jesus was to walk with greatness. And Jesus had, Jesus had even sent the disciples out, right? Jesus sent the 72 out with the power to heal other people. Imagine being a disciple, seeing these miracles, and then Jesus saying to you, now go out and heal people on your own. I give you the power to do it. And you go out and you heal people, and then you come back. Up until this point, following Jesus was a glorious and exciting honor-filled event what was filled with success but but now Jesus was saying something different now all of a sudden Jesus is talking about vulnerability he's talking about failure and there's this proclamation of these this thing that this this must happen these things must happen suffering rejection and death now you got to ask yourself do you want to follow a leader like that You've been following this guy who's, who's healing and, and doing miracles and this amazing person who's... And now he's talking about suffering, death, and vulnerability. Or should we be looking for a different kind of king? There's a fork in the road. Jesus doesn't soften the reality of the situation. He only intensifies it by issuing the real deal challenge. So my friends, if you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a Christ follower, this is what it's going to mean. This is Jesus' real deal challenge. And I want you to notice who it's for in that, in that verse. He says, then calling the crowd to join his disciples. In other words, this approach to spirituality isn't just for the select group of insider church folk. Right? This isn't just for the disciples. It's for everybody within the vicinity of the disciples. This is for you and me and everybody. Everyday, ordinary people living unremarkable lives, encountering everyday struggles are issued the same real deal challenge. Whoever, without expectation, without exception, whoever wants to be my disciples, whoever wants to be my followers, whoever wants to profess faith in me, here's what you're going to have to do. Let me remind you that this real deal challenge Jesus is talking about is new life. This new life, it's not some religious program. It's not some three steps to a better living Underneath everything in this challenge, that these were, that in these words of Christ, ring out, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened, that carry a heavy burden and I will give you rest. Because that's the essence of spirituality, isn't it? Isn't that the foundation of it? Or as Paul would say, I've been crucified with Christ. 
I am no longer living my own life, but it's, it's Christ that lives within me. If any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. So let's, let's dig into that for a few minutes. Let's look at three parts to it, to this real deal challenge. Look at it in three different levels. The first of which is that Jesus, this challenge, Jesus' challenge, he challenges our myth of comfort. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. That's where he starts. Must deny themselves. And at first glance, this sounds a little unhealthy, doesn't it? It sounds a little unhealthy. Because you'd think that Jesus would want us to take care of ourselves. Eat, drink, be merry. You can find scriptures that tell you to do anything. You look hard enough and proof text it. Shouldn't Jesus be taking, telling us to take care of ourselves? So let's be clear about what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you can't, that you should not enjoy life, that you shouldn't take pleasure in life. It doesn't mean that. Remember that God created all good things. Remember what James said in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. Jesus' real deal challenge isn't condemning us to a pleasureless life. He's calling, his call to denial is, is much more basic. It's, and it's much more radical. He challenges us to deny ourselves. The Bible calls it, um, it's more like, better translated, the, how do I say, the old man of the flesh. That's, that's, that's a better translation, uh, the old man of the flesh. And, that, and that's part of us that rebels against God's glory, um, even viewing God as, as the enemy. There's this part of us that wants to say that, that God is against us. That's that old man of the flesh. And, and, and the Bible warns us in this way, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. And that's from Galatians. That's, that's Paul's words. In other words, um, your worldly desires continuously want to be indulged and catered to. Like the things that we want perpetually draw us into them. They are like cardinal desires. A few verses later, the Bible says, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, meaning there's an opposition, a, 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 an opposition that happens between those two things. And the problem isn't with desire or pleasure, it's with distortion and misdirected desire. And one of our most basic distorted attractions is the craving for comfort and a comfortable life. I thought, I bet you thought I was going to go somewhere else with that. But... In reality, one of, our, one of our most influential desires is not the, the cardinal relational desire. It's actually the desire for that comfort. 
we act, or we can act like the most decent, respectable, righteous, church-going people in the world, but when someone messes with our comfort level, all bets are off. If I get uncomfortable with a situation, you better look out. We get really upset when we're uncomfortable, more so than anything else. Most parents can tell you the reality of the terrible twos. When the whole world revolves around us and our need for comfort. And some parents can tell you about the, um, the, the terrible twelves as well. And some parents can also tell you about the terrible twenty-twos as well. And some of my friends and family members could tell you about the terrible 36s. I'm 36. Unfortunately, as we grow older, our cravings for comfort and a comfortable life grow more in-depth and more robust because we know what we like and we seek it out. All of us have a terrible two-year-old inside of us somewhere. And it grows with us. Jesus says, deny yourself. And the best way I can think about it is to say, deny the terrible two-year-old inside yourself that's screaming for comfort. But that's because I now have a four-year-old. And it's very real in my mind. Put off the old self, which is being corrupt, and put on the new self, is what Paul said. When Jesus said, deny yourself, he was saying, say no to, to the self. So every time that craving to indulge our self or to, look, or to look out first and foremost for our comfort, we're supposed to deny it, to, to, to reject it, to disown it. The Greek word that, that that's, we translate into deny means to disavow any connection with. Just like, it's the same word that's used later in the gospel when Peter denied Jesus three times. So when Jesus says to deny it, it's the same Greek word when Peter denied Jesus, disavowed all knowledge of knowing it. So to deny yourself in this sense is exactly the same word that's used that Peter denied Christ. I don't know him. I don't know him. Jesus challenges our myth of comfort. The second thing is Jesus challenges our myth of safety. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. And taking up your, their, your cross doesn't necessarily mean merely taking up um, and putting up with difficult people. Nor did it mean that we should add suffering to our lives. Okay? Um, there, there are those, and especially throughout history, um, in, in early church history, that said taking up your cross meant that you had to suffer intentionally for Christ. You know, you see it in modern films where people would punish themselves. I hurt myself for Christ. It, yeah, that's not what Jesus meant at all. At all. 
Everyone in Jesus' day knew what a cross meant. Eventually, it became an instrument of death. But what's probably not, but that's probably not what Jesus meant at this time. There's a symbolism here that is often overlooked. Overlooked. So when we say take up your cross, I want you to go to the the um, crucifixion time, okay? And I want you to think of every movie you've ever seen of the crucifixion. Not the death, but the passion story, okay? Taking up the cross. Are you ready for this? Maybe you need to go to Braveheart. Jesus takes up the cross, and he's walking to Skull Hill, right? When he takes up the cross and he walks with it, what happens to him? Not when he's being hung on the cross. What happens? What do the people do to him? They harass him. They spit on him. They throw things at him. They mock him. They humiliate him. Yes? The image of taking up a cross is not just the physical weight and burden of it. The illustration that the people would have received by taking up your cross was a mantle of humiliation. It was beyond, I'm going to die because of my faith. Yes, that, that could have been part of it. And that became part of it as people were martyred for their faith. We don't live in a time where people had to be martyred. Like, we're blessed. We live in a country where we are free to gather and worship. But when Jesus spoke these words... And he said, take up your cross. People would have associated that with, when you put up a cross, that beam, and you carry it, people spit on you. They yell at you. You're humiliated. That means being a Christian is not going to be a good thing. You're going to be ostracized. It's like Jesus saying, is saying, I invite you to follow me, even though it's going to mean you're going to get in trouble, even if it means that you're going to be an outsider, an outcast, and a rebel, even if it means it goes against the grain of your culture to be a follower of Christ. So this is an invitation to follow and to allow people to abuse you. It is a, a specific invitation to follow Christ even when you're ridiculed and mocked. Which is also the point of verse 38 where he says, If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory with the angels. So Jesus challenges the myth of safety as well. The lie that life is supposed to be risk-free and that we're supposed to avoid danger, that's just a lie. We're supposed to keep ourselves safe, but we're not going to be safety fanatics. I mean, yes, wear your helmet, buckle your seatbelt, do those things, protect your kids as best you can, but don't misunderstand. You know, safety is a good thing, but wash your hands. I don't want to get the coronavirus thing. I get it. Elbow bumps, people. But if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to mean you might get hurt. It's going to mean you might get humiliated. 
along the way. And in truth, you might lose your life eventually. In Luke 21, 16, Jesus warns his followers about the future that they're going to face. He says that even those closest to you, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will betray you. They will even kill some of you. That's crazy, right? But it was true. Those closest to you are going to betray you. Some of them are going to kill you. And metaphorically or symbolically, some of you have already experienced that as you've been ostracized by family and friends. You understand that better than anyone else could. In his book entitled The History of Christian Mission, author Stephen Neal shows that the first 300 years after Jesus' life, his followers were often under threat. He says that every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. And we're blessed. We don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. But Jesus destroys the myth of safety in the real deal challenge. The third point is that Jesus challenges the myth of control. Control, that's the, that's the problem Peter had in this passage. He thinks that he's in control. Um, remember the, that in the disciples' mind, Jesus ha was having this identity crisis. Um, he's the Messiah, but he's, he's got these crazy ideas of what it means to be the Messiah and he, what he's supposed to do. And somebody has to get Jesus straight. He's got to set him straight. You're not doing the right thing, Jesus. You're supposed to be all-powerful. You're supposed to come and rule. You're supposed to do these great things. And now you're talking about death and, and, and dying and, and, and all these things. And, and when Jesus spoke plainly, um, Peter rebuked him. And that's when um, G Peter took him around and said, Nope, 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 Jesus, you got it all wrong. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. Right, you remember this part? But Jesus, when he did that in verse 33, Jesus turned around and he looked at the disciples when he said that. Because Jesus intended his rebuke of Peter to be heard by everybody. Where Peter wanted a private conversation, Jesus is going to make it a public event. And he said, get away from me, Satan, Get behind me, Satan, publicly. And this was, was not merely a line given in anger to someone who had stepped out of line. Um, there was an intention in what Jesus was saying. Jesus was telling Peter that he was out of line. Literally. Right? Not everyone likes the literally because of the culture we live in, but Jesus was talking literally when he was talking about a line. Peter was assuming a leadership role that wasn't his. It's as though Jesus was saying, Peter, get back in line. Have you ever, do you remember playing follow the leader as, as a kid or maybe as an adult? There's, there's one rule in the game, follow the leader. Do you know what it is? You, you follow the leader. Um, you know how you, you, you break the rule? You, you don't follow the leader. Yeah, um, Peter broke the rule. Jesus says, get back in line. He'd stepped out of line and tried to get ahead of Jesus. 
Jesus says, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view. And Jesus says, listen, I'm the leader, you're the follower. Get back in line. And Peter gets back in line. It's not the first time it happened. It wasn't the last time it happened. Peter gets back in line. When we try to step ahead of Christ, step around Christ, or step out in our own direction, when we get out of line, we're not following the path. You know what they say, if, if, you're, if you're leading and no one's following, you know what you're doing? You're just taking a walk in the woods. That's what they say. Jesus was leading in a specific direction. And if you, if you say you're going to be a follower of Christ, you've got to make sure you're following behind Christ. You can't lead in your own direction. Jesus calls out, calls him out, and puts him back in his place. So there's a reward to this real deal challenge, this ultimate challenge. And here's my question. Why would anyone sign up for it? Why would anyone sign up for the real deal challenge? As opposed to those Duke students this challenge is for life. And you can retire as a teacher. So why would you want to do this? Jesus gets straight to the point. What is it that you want from life? It's a good question. I think everyone should ask it every once in a while. What is it that you really want from life? Is it comfort? Is it safety? Is it control? Or maybe it would be better said, what is it you want from life? Is it money? Is it power? Is it authority? Because those are kind of synonyms to those. Comfort, money. Safety, power. Control, authority. Do those things truly bring you what matters most in life? If any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your own cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If we call ourselves followers of Christ, do we live into or ignore Jesus' real deal challenge? Do we seek comfort, perhaps even in the church? Is it all about me and my comfort, covered in a veneer of, of religious language? Are we addicted to safety and security, so much so that it cripples us from living a life full of Christ. Are we addicted to control? Do we want Jesus to line up behind us? Or do we want it the other way around? Let me ask you. 
Is your faith strong enough to stand up against ridicule? What could you risk today and this week for God? And where is God telling you to get in line? Holy God, we ask that you would be gracious in your reprimand in all the ways that we have stepped out of line. Guide us safely back into line behind your Son, Christ. As we follow in stride, give us the strength that we need to endure the cost of the cross that we each will experience in the days ahead. Work in our lives and in our hearts. Free us from the chains of brokenness and sin that weigh on our lives. Set us free by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, that we pray. Amen. Good morning. As many of you know, uh, Pastor Tim has chosen to take a leave of absence from pastoral ministry and pursue other employment at this point in his life. And a job opportunity has opened up for him at uh, Siemens Corporation, right? I got that right? Okay. In Plymouth, and he will begin his new job on March 23rd. And this means that Pastor Tim's last day with us will be next Sunday, March 15th. I realize this is short notice, but we do want to wish Pastor Tim and Aaron and his children their best as they begin a new adventure in life. And next week, um, you are all invited to stay for a time together with family uh, to wish him well and have a little reception for them and be able to say goodbye. So this also means that there will be a longer transition in the, while we're waiting for the pastor, the new pastor to arrive in July. And so about three and a half months, we were going, we were going to have other pastors and speakers from both Redeemer's DeWitt campus and St. John's campus. And in case you know, that's probably me because I think I'm about the only one here. Uh, but some of these people you've already heard before, and uh, they will be helping us through the transition. It's also Pastor Rod's intention to join us sometime this summer and into the fall after the Reverend Debbie Thomas begins her appointment with Redeemer July 1st. I met uh, Reverend Debbie the other evening, and she's a really wonderful person, very genuine, very articulate, and she has a wonderful story to share. If there are any pastoral concerns that need attention, please contact Marie in the church office or Pastor Rod at the Duet campus. Our staff stands ready to serve the needs of this church family in this interim time, and there will be more information for you in next week's worship folder. Thank you.